So we've been talking about Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, right? And I won't spend too much time on the intro other than to say that there was a big kind of theological issue, and theology really does matter. I don't know if that's a kind of a dirty word for you, but theology just means a word about God. That's literally what it means. Um, and, and it really is, what do you think about God, who he is? And one of the core convictions of Christians and Christianity is that what you think about God really does matter. It matters to how you think of yourself. It matters to how you interact with other people. And in the case of the Galatians, when they first had come to understand who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was and what he was like, that he was gracious, that he reached out to people who couldn't find him, opened their eyes, drew them to himself. It filled their lives with joy. And that spilled over into the way they related to one another. But then some other teachers came in and said, well, that's not exactly what God is like. Yeah, that's how relationship with God starts. But after that, you need to kind of make sure you keep your end of the deal and you keep your, you know, you kind of keep your obedience together and you really go the extra mile for God. And if you really go the extra mile for God, well, then he'll keep loving you. But you really need to do that. And when that, what seems like a small little twist or a small little addition, when that happened, it had devastating effects on their community. So we all long for community. We all long for a community where people love one another rather than using one another. And what Paul says here and what the Bible says consistently is the only way that kind of real community can happen is if you've been set free from needing the approval of others. And the only thing that can set you free from needing the approval of others is either to harden your heart so you don't care about anybody or to have your heart set free by the love of God securing you so that you can then serve others rather than to having to worship them and what they think. Now, as Paul begins to talk about this, he gets to this famous section in his letter where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the acts of the flesh. And I talked some about this battle, okay, last week. Tonight, I want to really focus on the fruit of the Spirit. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful image, but I think sometimes it's understood, misunderstood. I know for myself, for a long time, I misunderstood it. I remember, you know, I had a very traumatic experience my senior year in high school. Best friend who was going to be my roommate in college got murdered by another friend of ours. And I didn't really have any categories for that. My rudimentary understanding of Christianity, I hadn't been a Christian for very long, was if God is sovereign, then Christians shouldn't cry. And so I just kind of found a lot of comfort in being kind of the answer man and the person who didn't really come to terms with grief. And it really was um, my senior year in college when I had some good friends that were like, you know, that's not really right that you haven't cried in five years. What's going on there? We're going to actually start praying that you would, you know, start. To, and I was, and I remember thinking at this point in time, you know, I know I don't, I can't weep with those who weep, but I really have a lot of the fruit of self-control. Like, 
I can look at this and I was like, I don't have much joy. It's hard for me to be excited about anything, but I, I have a lot of self-control. Like, things just don't phase me. I'm like a rock. As a matter of fact, I remember, the, you know, I moved down here to Nashville soon after that, got a job in a recording studio. The first record that I ever got a thank you on, um, the producer said to Kevin, you're a rock. I took great pride in that because when things were chaotic, I felt like I could be like even keeled all the time. And then I read a little book by a guy named Jonathan Edwards that really rocked my world because he pointed out that it doesn't say fruits, plural. It says fruit. Let's look at this passage and then we'll unpack why that matters and why my understanding of my own kind of spiritual growth was really wrongheaded. We're going to start verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5. This is the Apostle Paul. This is God's Word. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so you are not to do so so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I should say, what he means is this is a habitual description of who you are. He's not saying that Christians are perfect. The Bible regularly cautions us against thinking that Christians are perfect. But is this a kind of a description of who you are? That's, that's what he's talking about. But then verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Jonathan Edwards said, notice it's fruit singular, not fruits. And the reason that matters is because this is not a list of things that you can pick and choose the ones that are sort of part of your natural temperament or the ones that seem to fit the way you want your life to be lived. In other words, if you have self-control, you think you have self-control, but you have no joy, you don't really have the fruit of self-control. That's what Edwards is saying. And he has this book, Charity and its Fruits. That's the old-fashioned King James word for love, right? So he's talking about love and its fruits. What is the, the fruits of love? He says that what the, really the thing to understand here is this is not a list of attributes or skills hopefully you have. You know, 
the way they diagnose psychological disorders. Do, do you know how they, you know, the DSM, right? They have a list, a whole big list of characteristics. And if you have a certain number of them, then they say they're, they're kind of describing certain things that way. That's not what this is. This is not, uh, if you have some of these, cool, you're a Christian and you're being led by the Spirit. No, what Edwards points out is this is a multifaceted description of holiness. It, it, it's, if you will, like eight facets of a diamond, a beautiful Christian character. Beautiful Christian character that flows out of being secure in the love of God. Look at how he ends the, the passage that we read. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And earlier he talks about um, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You remember I talked about this last week. Being under the law means looking to your own obedience for your right standing with God. It's basically saying I can be in a relationship with God and it can be a good relationship because I'm good. And I'm doing all the right things to keep God liking me. To do that, to live that way, will produce the acts of the flesh. All of these are connected to needing to either puff yourself up, try to, to masquerade joy of some sort, or to tear other people down. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that comes by trusting in what Christ has done and being secure in that, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness. Does that make sense? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, when we look at the fruit lists, and there are actually several different lists of fruit in the New Testament, and they're not all the same. Did you know that? There are several lists, and they're not all the same. That's one of the clues that it's not just a, a list of particular characteristics, but they're different kind of ways of describing Christian character, loving one another. But he says, when we look at the fruitless, we notice that we are naturally stronger in some rather than others, but our strengths apart from the Spirit are due to natural temperament or to natural self-interests. John, the Apostle John says, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Notice he does not say he's unbalanced. He says he is a liar. True love to God goes along with love to others. If they're not all there, they're not there at all. You see what he, the point he's making? When, when the Apostle John says in 1 John that if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar, what he's calling into question is whether you love God at all. In other words, if you have love, but you don't have joy, then what you think is love may not actually be love. Now, this is not a black and white kind of thing. When you look at this list, you're like, well, I don't have perfect love. I don't have perfect joy. I don't have perfect peace. He's not saying that. He's saying, does your life exhibit these characteristics? Not perfectly. Not perfectly. But do you begin to see this kind of fruit? Now, there's a couple, couple 
implications if this list is actually a multifaceted way of describing Christian holiness. The first is, beware of looking at your natural strengths, the things that flow out of your natural temperament as a sign of Christ-likeness. What I came to realize is that there can be counterfeit fruit that masquerade as the fruit of the Spirit. But one of the ways you know that I didn't have really the fruit of self-control was I had no joy. And the reason I had no joy was because I wouldn't let myself feel anything. And what I thought was self-control was really just shutting my emotions down. If, if, if you don't have joy and self-control, if you don't have peace, the kind of peace that he's talking about here is not peace that doesn't empathize with other people. It's not the kind of peace that comes from shutting your heart off to caring about anything or anybody, just becoming stoic. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a deep abiding sense of peace that underlies the ups and the downs, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. So be careful about looking at our natural strengths. All of us have natural strengths. All of us have um, sort of ways, strategies for how to make life work. Actually, I was telling somebody this just this week and doing some premarital counseling. When Wendy and I um, were engaged to be married and we went into premarital counseling, one of the first things that our counselor told us was, you know, you guys are awesome and, you know, so exciting to be, you know, engaged and whatnot, but here's what you need to understand. You have, are drawn to one another, attracted to one another, not only for good reasons, but because your flesh meshes well with her flesh. And I don't mean in a physical sense. What he means is each of you have in your heart a desire to run from Jesus and not be needy and not be dependent. And it looks different in each of you, but the difference actually meshes really well together. And here, here's what he said. He goes, like, for instance, Kevin, you really struggle to trust God enough to feel things. You really do. And yet, when you're around Wendy, who feels things very deeply, you feel like you're better than you really are. And Wendy, you really struggle to trust God that things are going to be okay. But when you're with Kevin, there's sort of like this ballast because he's kind of unmoved. And it's easier to kind of be with him and feel like everything's going to be okay without actually learning to trust God. And we were like, oh, dang. <laughs> he's right. He's right. Like each of us needed to trust Jesus, but the manifestation of how we weren't trusting sort of masqueraded as spirituality until we got around somebody who could see through that. And one of the ways he could see it was because while I had self-control, I couldn't feel things. While she had joy, she found it difficult to have peace. Right? And maybe you can identify with that. Use this as a diagnostic, but be careful that you don't just pick and choose the things that you're naturally good at and then conclude that you're Christian understanding of the gospel is bearing great fruit. Because it, it, it may not actually be all that's going on. And then beware of trusting in your gifts. Gifts can work 
even when the spirit is not working. And um, man, if you ever get into ministry vocationally, watch out. Watch out. So often, even like the job descriptions, you know, you look in the back of different magazines, you look on websites for, you know, ads for churches looking for pastors or worship leaders. And so often, the kinds of things that are lifted are, the, are listed are the kinds of things that are gifts that can be exercised without needing to trust God. That's a dangerous place to be. In RUF, if you hang around RUF a lot, if you come join our leadership team, you'll hear, hear me talk about the importance of a philosophy of ministry. The reason that we want students to understand why we do what we do, and we want those answers to come from the scripture, is because it's very easy to do ministry based on what worked last year or on your own personality. As a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons that we take RUF interns and we send them to another campus. Now, we didn't do that with Anna Kate, but she's the rare, rare exception. Carter got to come here from another school. And RUF at Samford looks very different than RUF here. <laughs> really, it does, right? Because I'm different, you all are different, Belmont's different. And we want people to understand how, that not everything that we do in RUF is just because of our philosophy ministry. A lot of it is because of who I am, strengths and weaknesses. And we want to be careful that we don't just build a ministry around gifts and strengths and personalities. All right. Now, what about the weeds and the counterfeit? Because I, I want to I get into this a little bit. And I won't go through all of them, but I want to introduce this idea. This, um, there's a guy named John Sanderson. I don't know if he's still alive, actually. He was a professor at Covenant Seminary before I got there. And, you know, sometimes when you're doing, studying different books and different commentaries, listening to different sermons and your preparation, you know, if you listen to Tim Keller, you'll be like, oh, well, there's no other way to pe preach this passage. Um, <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes, I found this a couple times in my life, and some of you may not know him, but he's a pastor who's recently stepped down from his pastorate up in New York City, but very important, you know, Christian in the 20th, 21st century. Um, you know, sometimes you can find the book that influenced his sermons. And so he's got some great sermons on the fruit and the weeds and the counterfeit fruit. And then I found John Sanderson's book on the fruit of the Spirit, and I was like, aha, I see where I got it. Because Sanderson's the guy who kind of develops this. And here's what he's saying. When you look at the acts of the flesh here, um, they're the opposite of the fruit, right? And Paul sets it up that way. And they are the kinds of things that grow when the soil is really corrupt. When they're the kinds of things that grow when you're trusting in yourself and the insecurity that comes from that. The weeds grow up. And the weeds really are, uh, you know, the opposite of the fruit. But then, and this is the, the one that's more tricky, is the counterfeit fruit. The counterfeit fruits are like my understanding of self-control that was really about killing my heart. But it wasn't really the fruit of the Spirit. It actually was one of the weeds. It, it really was coming from my own need to protect myself rather than trust Jesus. It was. Do you understand? It wasn't, it wasn't like it was kind of self-control. It was actually not self-control at all. Because real self-control comes out of the Spirit's work and trusting 
in Jesus who lived and died in my place. I wasn't doing that. I was trusting in my ability to protect myself from being hurt. That was my self-trust, okay? Does that make sense? So as we look at some of these, um, let's, let's look at a couple of these, um, like love. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean here when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love? It seems that what he's talking about here is love for one another. Uh, Tim Keller talks about it as serving a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what they can bring to you. There's actually a place, I love this place in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talks about how we used to regard people according to kind of worldly way. But we don't do that anymore. And then he goes on and he talks about how one Christ died, therefore we live not for ourselves, but for others. There is a basic orientation in how we relate to others that changes when the gospel comes into our lives with power. We no longer have to get approval from other people. We now can love other people. Sometimes that means disappointing other people. Love. What are the weeds? Fear and self-protection. This chokes out love. Hatred, using and abusing people. But what about the counterfeits? What about the counterfeits? I think one of those would be limited love. You know this story where Jesus is asked by an expert in the law, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's written in the law? And the guy says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. Do this and you'll live. And then notice this, this is in Luke 10. But, the guy who's asking Jesus, the expert in the law, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Like Luke wants to make sure you understand why he's asking this. Wanting to justify himself is causing him to want to put limits on love. Now, this is not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit comes out of knowing that Jesus lived and died for his enemies. And we're called to love. I, man, I remember years ago, I was, uh, got a guy that used to cut my hair. Um, he's a gay guy who I developed quite a good friendship with. And I remember one time he had visited a church in town. I will not tell you which one, no matter how much you plead. But he'd visited this church, and he was real frustrated by his experience there. And we were talking about it. And um, at one point, he kind of blurted out, I don't understand, like, why can't Christians just tolerate us? And I said, you know, what makes me really sad is that you think that's the best you can hope for from Christians. But I don't have a Bible that says tolerate everyone. I have a Bible that says love. And like how tragic that, that so many people think tolerance is enough. Tolerance is the satanic counterfeit of love. It makes people feel like you're okay, I'm okay, which is so demeaning 
and dehumanizing. Says that what really matters to you doesn't matter to me. I'm just going to not look at anything that makes you who you are. I'm just going to say, no, no, everybody's welcome. Everybody's fine. If you love somebody, you can't just say everything's fine. Because everybody you love has places where they need to trust Jesus more. They may not know it. You may not know it. But I know it's there. Everybody I meet with, I know that they have a great need for Jesus. And I know that they have a great Jesus for their need. I love that quote by Spurgeon, and I think about that often. I may not be able to figure it out, you may not be able to figure it out, but I know it's true, right? And I know I'm called to love, not merely tolerate. But we always wanna limit love. We always wanna limit love to what seems reasonable. Either we limit who we're called to love. Well, I, I know I'm called to love these people, but these people don't really appreciate my love very much, so I'm kinda done loving them. The Bible doesn't give you that. Freedom, right? And that is always a good clue as to whether it's really love. If it's, if it's love only insofar as it's appreciated, is it really love? Right? Or is it the kind of love where you're seeking affirmation through your love, what we call codependency? That's another satanic counterfeit. It seems like love. There's a great difference between being worshipped and being loved. Right? Being worshipped is when someone says, don't ever change. Don't ever change. You're perfect just how you are. That's not love. Love longs for you to be made in the image of Christ, more beautiful than you can imagine. That's what Paul talked about in the last chapter, right? He says, I'm groaning in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. That's love. That's the kind of love that moves Paul towards these Galatians even when they don't want to hear from him. That's why we have the letter to the Galatians. So it's so easy for us to put limits. Now, I, I know, you know, there, there's wisdom issues we could talk about with, you know, abusive relationships and all these sorts of things, right? So, you know, hear what I'm saying, hear what I'm not saying. But be careful when you think about love do you think in terms of what's reasonable for God to ask you to do? The real gospel that says that basically you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, can ask you, can ask you to love sacrificially. And that's what the true gospel does, right? Now, how does the gospel grow love in our hearts? How does this fruit grow? Here's the best way. Love somebody who's difficult to love. Because one of the best ways to grow in love is to grow more dependent on the love of Jesus. And one of the best ways to grow in that is to realize how little of it you have. And one of the best ways to learn how little of the love of Jesus is really animating you is to set yourself to loving somebody who's difficult to love. And it will cause you to cry out. Dan Allender, who's a Christian counselor I love, he says one of, the, one of the worst things is to be loved by somebody who knows that they love well. You know what he's saying? Have you ever been loved by somebody who's convinced that they love well rather than somebody who's convinced that they need God's help to love? Feels very different. We want to be the kind of people who in loving come to the end of ourselves very quickly. And rather than saying, well, that's far enough. It's not really reasonable for you to ask me to love you more than that. No, we want to be the ones who cry out and say, God, give me your love for this person. 
You know, when I do weddings, sometimes, well, almost all the time, I'll mention this verse in Hosea, where God says, your love for me, O Ephraim, is like the morning mist. You know what that image is about? As soon as the sun comes up, what happens to the morning mist? It's gone. So if God says, your love for me, the perfect one, is like the morning mist, how can you possibly pledge to love another person for the rest of your life? You either do it out of naivete or you do it out of great faith. Asking God to give you his love for this person. And that's why 1 John says we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say we love God because he first loved us, so that's certainly true. But it says we love because he first loved us. Think of it this way. Is Christian love the sun or the moon? You know what I mean? The moon reflects light, doesn't generate it. Your love is like the moon. You're not the love generator. To the degree that you're appropriating and being blown away by the love of God, to that degree you can love other people. If you're trying to wump it up in your own strength because you think you're the sun, you are going to begin to grow bitter and worn out. And you're going to begin to put limits on love. Let's look at one more. Peace. Let's jump down to peace. Peace, confidence and rest in the wisdom and sovereignty of God rather than in your wisdom and your sovereignty. The objective peace with God that the reconciliation of the gospel brings. In other words, Man and God were at enmity with one another until Jesus comes, lives and dies in our place, and real objective peace between God and man is now brought. And, Paul says in Ephesians, that objective peace where God reconciles himself to us actually has the effect of reconciling us to one another as well. It's like this, that if you have Jews and Gentiles who hate each other, but they're both reconciled to God, Think of it like a pyramid, that as they're reconciled to God, they're inevitably brought together because how can you love God and hate your brother when your brother is made in the image of God? And Paul goes so far as to say, you know, really the key is understanding that you were dead, but God made you alive. It's by grace you have been saved. This is Ephesians 2. And that is the key to loving other people. That is the key This peace that's been wrought, not by what you did, but by what God did, is the thing that humbles you and is the thing that actually begins to give you the ability to love other people. It's also the thing that begins to help you understand peace. Peace. The objective peace with God that the gospel brings drives peace with yourself and with others. See, here's the thing. If you think that it's up to you to make life work and you think that it's all about you doing the things that God wants, what happens when life doesn't go as you want? There are really only two possibilities at that point. You either look to God and say, God, I did everything I was supposed to do and look what happened. And you'll feel like he's giving you a raw deal. Or, especially in our shame-based 
postmodern culture, you'll look at yourself and say, I just didn't do enough. Right before I drove up here, I was watching the news and they had this uh, girl, Michaela, who's this amazing downhill skier, and this little interview, and we're talking about what the sports psychologist taught her, because she literally, like, in the last couple of years, has had a couple times where she gets there into the starter's block and, like, becomes so nauseous from anxiety that she can hardly perform. And she said, I'm just tormented by the idea. I mean, she's, like, the world champion, like, youngest gold medal winner in downhill skiing, right, at 17. But she says, I'm tormented by, by the idea that somebody might have put in one ounce more of work. And I won't know that until I, you know, go down this hill. It's like, gosh. Yeah, see, what happens is either you blame God because you think, I've done great, and he did not reward me as he should. Or, more likely, you look at yourself and say, the reason life isn't going as I wanted is because I didn't do enough. I didn't do it well enough. I didn't think through this enough and consider the possibilities and sort of make, you know, do you do that kind of thing? Where you, anxiety is so much about trying to take control by thinking through every possibility. Now, I know that there's chemical imbalances and whatnot that go into anxiety, but a, a lot of our anxiety is also connected to this self-justification and trying to be on the throne of our lives and trying to consider every possibility so we can kind of preemptively figure it out and take control of it. And that's why... That's why it's a, it's a weed. It's the opposite of trusting God. It's trusting ourselves. And then there's jealousy and envy. It's another weed. You can't have peace in what God has ordained for you because you're always worried about what other people are going to get. You remember this story where, you know, basically um, Jesus tells Peter that you're going to be crucified. You want to follow me? God's going to, you know, you're going to end up going somewhere where you don't want to go and you're going to be bound. He's basically saying, Peter, you're going to die for following me. You remember what Peter does at the end of John's gospel? He looks at John and he says, Jesus, what about him? <laughs> he says, what about him? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Jealousy and envy is basically you're always focused on other people and what God has ordained for them, that you can't rest in what God has for you. What's the counterfeit? The counterfeit is apathy and indifference. That's not the same thing as peace. Peace is an abiding trust in what God has ordained. But the counterfeit is saying, I don't care, whatever. It's not the same thing. It's, it, it produces what looks like fruit, but it's very different because it produces deadness and numbness. And I th do think a lot of pop psychology today is an attempt to quit caring about things. Like to say, for instance, I just want to quit caring about what I look like. Instead of saying, no, what you need to understand is you were made to be beautiful. And you're never going to get that out of your heart. The only thing you can do is to rest in the righteousness, the beauty of Christ that's been credited to your account. You need to rest in that, not think that it doesn't matter. It's a big difference. How does the gospel grow peace? By giving us faith in the sovereignty and the love of God. I love this, this verse in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 8. Man, this is one of my favorite verses. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, 
that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What an incredible combination of attributes that Peter highlights there. He has a mighty hand and he cares for you. There's a lot of, a lot of people, I think, that are, like, are trying to find peace in their life by just trusting that God has a mighty hand and I better not, I better not try to, to, to sort of thwart his. But they struggle with peace because they don't really believe he cares. And then there are other people who are trying to just believe he cares, but they're really not sure he has a mighty hand. Right? And both of those create kind of counterfeit versions of peace. Real peace comes from knowing that he has a mighty hand and he cares for you. That's unbeatable, that combination. Peace comes from knowing that both of these are true. And the cross proves it. When Jesus says, it is finished, he meant it and he knew it. And every time your heart wants to say to you, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what I'm going through. He doesn't care what it's like to live in my shoes. Like we sang, go to dark Yosemite, learn how to live, learn how to die. Everything you need is found there at the cross because at the cross you have the clearest expression of the love of God, the power of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God. They're all seen most clearly in Christ and him crucified. Don't try to content yourself just trusting in the sovereignty of God as a theological abstraction. You trust in the sovereignty of God in the person of Jesus and him crucified. Right? And I don't know if that answers all the questions. I don't think it does. But it gives me the ability to keep trusting. And that's what we, that's what we need. Well, let me pray for us.